You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Senate Democrats are all but powerless to keep Judge Amy Coney Barrett off the Supreme Court. Barrett was questioned about abortion rights, Obamacare, guns, and election disputes. She declined to answer questions on some issues she has expressed personal opinions on in the past, such as abortion rights, or on what she would do regarding other matters likely to come before the Supreme Court. My guest is Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. What did we learn about Judge Barrett from the hearings? We've learned very little about Judge Barrett, but we've mostly learned that the senators are using this nomination process as a way to reach the American people and influence them for the election. That's what they focused on, and both Republicans and Democrats are using spin to try to get voters on their side. Judge Barrett has refused to answer numerous questions about many different topics. Has this become the norm for Supreme Court nominations, hearings, or is she taking it even a step further? Unfortunately, she's very close to the norm. I mean, perfecting the art of the non-answer is something that she's taken perhaps to a, a different level, but we've seen that in the last several nominations, and unfortunately in this age of partisanship, um, the non-answer is the one that gets by and doesn't antagonize any of the senators who are asking questions. There are a couple of clues that have come through. Uh, to give one prominent example, Judge Barrett said that the president of Brown versus Board of Education recognizing that separate is not equal is entrenched into our system, has been accepted, and should never be second-guessed. Uh, and she refused to do that for Roe versus Wade. She said that despite the fact that the court has reconsidered it and affirmed Roe versus Wade, the fact that there's so much discussion about it means that it's not entrenched. And so her theory, which is a little bizarre, uh, is that if the precedent is accepted, there's no reason to reexamine it, which of course is obvious. But if it's not accepted, then you can reexamine it. So her, her answers, even in contrast to those of now Justice Kavanaugh just a couple of years ago, suggest a willingness to reconsider Roe versus Wade. So I would consider that the biggest clue that she let drop today in the discussion so far. She talked with Lindsey Graham at the beginning about precedent and what she called a super precedent. First of all, is super precedent something you teach in law school nowadays? So super precedent um, is, is not something that we have historically taught or knew anything about. And indeed, uh, Justice Kavanaugh used the expression precedent on precedent 
uh, which I had not been aware of until he used it. And so what these jurors are doing are trying to suggest that there are some precedents, yes, that we should reexamine, and some precedents that are uh, beyond reproach. And there is a consensus in the academy and probably amongst the court that the justices should be willing to reconsider constitutional precedents more readily than statutory precedents because Congress can always change a statutory interpretation by the court that they disagree with, and Congress can't do that with the court's interpretation of the Constitution. What do you make of the fact that she was willing to say that Casey was precedent but not Roe v. Wade? Well, my interpretation of her answer is suggesting that despite Casey, there's still so much discussion and so much uh, hand-wringing about the status of Casey and Roe v. Wade that it's not entrenched precedent, which to me uh, was a clear signal, maybe not in the first case she hears, maybe not in the second, but at some point she would be willing to overturn Roe versus Wade itself. Have you ever heard that definition of precedent before? Uh, Again, it makes no sense to me at all because the the point is if it's a circle, Um, it's it's soliloquy because if people then are willing to overturn precedent, suddenly it becomes eligible for overturning which is no rule at all. So her rule of stare decisis or precedent is far weaker than others on the court, even weaker than that of the least that professed, you know, by uh, Justice Kavanaugh just a couple years ago. Maybe she misspoke, but it sounded to me as if she said, if it's a controversial precedent, it's fair game. Let's go on to Obamacare. And she has written about Justice Roberts' opinion in Obamacare and criticized it. What do you take away from what she said about any case of Obamacare coming before her? Well, she clearly indicated that she would not recuse herself, and I don't think the rules currently would force her to recuse herself at all. She did give a little bit of clue um, by saying that the precise issue that would be before the court in early November, right after the election, dealing with Obamacare has to do with the constitutional doctrine called severability, which asks, how do you ascertain Congress's underlying intent if one part of the statute is deemed unconstitutional? And that really, on that issue, hangs the fate of Obamacare. And she said, look, that wasn't an issue when I wrote the article, um, and I've done no writing on it. It's a separate issue. And if if I'm on the court and the issue comes up, I'm going to have to grapple with it for the first time. And that's something that suggests at least that she is not perhaps made up her decision and that her writings would not convince her that she should vote to hold unconstitutional. I'm skeptical, but that's at least a, a tea leaf from what she said in the hearings. I've been talking to Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago Kent College of Law. What was your take on her description of when she would recuse herself from a case? Isn't it up to the justices themselves to decide that? There are some uh, clear directives uh, in terms of like financial um, uh, involvement that re- would require a, a judge to uh, recuse themselves. I believe there's also a rule if you had been involved in the case previously as, for instance, an executive branch officer. So we've had... Uh, justices recuse themselves when they hear a case that challenged something which, in which they were involved in when they were in the Justice Department. Uh, but there is a wide ray, a gray area. And so what I think she was saying, and I think with some justification, that at least the examples 
suggested to her by the senators were in that gray area, fact-specific, and likely she wouldn't have to um, recuse herself. I mean, the one issue that was raised, um, which sheds some lights on this, is she's been asked several times whether she promised the president to rule in a particular way on a given case, because that, of course, is what President Trump has made it seem like. And she clearly stated that that was not the case, um, because that would have strengthened the case for recusal. But on the question of the constitutionality of Obamacare or what would happen if there was a challenge to President Trump's um, election uh, come November, uh, she clearly said, I have made no promises. I have no pre-commitments about ruling in any way on those cases, which, again, would signal that she doesn't believe she would ever need to recuse herself in those settings. I remember that Justice Scalia refused to recuse himself from a case involving Dick Cheney, even though he was friendly with Dick Cheney and had gone hunting with him even. There's no one, the Chief Justice is not looking at the justices and saying, oh, you have to recuse yourself in this case. No, that's right. And and, um, again, one could, an issue might arise, but I don't think this this particular set of circumstances dictates a need to uh, for any kind of recusal. So I do think that uh, Judge Barrett was on strong ground in thinking, you know, in saying or expressing her belief that yes, she might have to recuse herself in, in some cases. For instance, if there was a case in which she was involved in the Seventh Circuit, um, but and just because of this politically charged atmosphere near an election, I don't think that necessarily would force her hand to accuse herself from any kind of controversial case involving President Trump or involving Obamacare. At one point, I believe it was Senator Durbin, was asking her about decisions that she took part in at the Seventh Circuit. And in one decision, she was in dissent in saying that she thought that a felon should have the right to own a gun. Her rulings on the Seventh Circuit are comprehensive, though they haven't touched upon many of the constitutionally charged issues of the day. And one of the cases that she has ruled upon, she dissented in a case in which um, the court held that a uh, nonviolent felon did not have the right to possess a gun. And she thought that as an individual right back in 1789, she believes the Second Amendment is an individual right that should give a wide ambit or large possibility for people to then enjoy that right, even felons who are nonviolent felons. Um, So that she signaled there a very strong interest in maintaining a robust Second Amendment. And of course, um, the Republicans were delighted to highlight that as a way of trying to embrace people who like guns in this country to vote Republican come um, the election. you know, you might ask yourself if if there's a Second Amendment right to for felons to own guns, then shouldn't there be a right to vote as well? Um, whether she would agree with that statement, um, I, I'm not sure, but we may find out in the future. Justice Scalia was her mentor, and she has said that she will follow in Justice Scalia's footsteps. She says you're not going to get a Justice Scalia, you're going to get a Justice Barrett. She's an originalist, a textualist. What does that tell you? It it tells us not everything, but it tells us that, that, like Justice Scalia, she'd be very skeptical of sort of the broad, open-ended rights that have been read into the Due Process Clause, namely the right to privacy 
and the right to bodily autonomy. Because if the right was not clearly articulated at the time of the framing, she'd be more skeptical. I mean, there are open-ended constitutional provisions like free from an unreasonable search and seizure. You have to read some kind of evolution into those words because, you know, there was no Internet back in the time of the of the framing. And so like Justice Scalia, she might be turn out to be more liberal in some criminal justice questions. But when you come to rights, she'll be very strict in trying to understand what a right is and what is not. So she would probably tend to be skeptical of many of the rights that the courts over the last 30 years have recognized, you know, such as, again, bodily autonomy, uh, privacy. And we're not sure, but she might be very skeptical about um, affirmative action as well. And as we all know, there has been some very close votes in affirmative action over the past couple of years. Justice Scalia thought that Roe was wrongly decided. He was in the minority in the Obergefell case, the same-sex marriage case, and he voted against Obamacare. So can we take it that she'll be on the same side of those issues? Or is that drawing too uh, I, much? I, clearly, clearly, with respect to the you know, rights of gays and transgender, there are reasons for deep concern. Her view would be that the Equal Protection Clause should be quite limited. Her view of marriage is quite the, probably right, very historically based. So her votes would likely line up with Justice Scalia in that case. And I think the Obamacare case is really different. It had to do with the scope of the Commerce Clause in part over um, the insurance markets. And I don't think that lines up as neatly with uh, in terms of Justice Scalia's originalism. But what I do think um, that she, even more so than Justice Scalia, would probably believe in a vigorous free exercise clause, which would probably suggest that the government cannot place sort of mainstream um, responsibilities and obligations on on those exercising religious rights. So what happens with this conflict between the taxing power in a church, or if there's a conflict between a right of non-discrimination against gays or people of different, different races against the religious rights? She might change the scales and vote that, we, that the government cannot impose such burden upon those exercising their religions, and that would, I think, cause much disruption in our society. How do you think she handled the questions and, you know, her demeanor? Yeah, she's very calm. She's very self-assured. Um, she's, she's clearly confident in her own abilities and in her, her experience that she will be able to handle the job. Uh, and in terms of traditional notions of qualification, she's clearly very well qualified for, for the job, but she will move the court. She will move the court even more to the right than it is now. And part of the skirmishing that I saw both yesterday and today is preparing the ground for a possible fight over the structure of the Supreme Court in the future about whether with these last two appointments and the sort of hypocrisy of the Republicans, if the Democrats get the Senate and the presidency, will they try to alter the court in some way to sort of fight back against at this sort of incursion or seeming incursion by the Republicans. Any final thoughts, Hal? Much of the questioning today by both Republicans and Democrats, say by Senator Cruz on the Republican side, Senator Whitehouse on the Democratic side, they didn't even ask questions of Judge Barrett. I mean, they clearly were using their time, as is their prerogative, 
to talk directly to the American people about, on the one hand, Republican values of religion and gun ownership. On the other hand, the Democratic values of Affordable Care Act um, and so forth, because, again, this is just so clearly an opportunity to try to influence voting as it uh, continues up until November, so that in some ways, even the senators themselves didn't take this seriously as an opportunity to, to grill and find out more about Judge Barrett. The way these hearings are now structured and the way the nominees don't answer questions, is there any point in having these hearings anymore? No, it's a great question, and the function of the hearings has changed you know, over time. Um, I think the, there is a necessity to do, for a period, to do due diligence, to find what somebody has written, to find out if there's any kind of whiff of impropriety in their background. So it, the idea of having something, a waiting period, to allow for investigation, I think it's critical. But I'm not sure that there's much function in these sort of showboat um, hearings after the nomination because, again, what we've seen so far is pure posturing by both sides. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Hal. That's Harold Crant, a professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com. Monday's session was primarily opening statements. Barrett cast herself as a judge who puts her personal preferences aside saying the public shouldn't expect courts to resolve policy disputes or make value judgments and that judges should not try to do so. My guest is Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. What did you think about the opening statements? And let's start with the Democratic senators basically talking about what effect her nomination would have on the Obamacare decision coming up after the election. Well, they did talk about that. Uh, because that's front and center for the elections that are coming up. But I think more fundamentally, they said that basically uh, what Republicans were doing with this nomination uh, was directly opposed to what they did in 2016 as a matter of principle. And I think they're correct about that. Basically, that Senator McConnell and all the Republicans uh, wouldn't allow Merrick Garland, um, the distinguished nominee of President Barack Obama, to even have a hearing or even meet with him, uh, given the fact that it was 10 months before um, the end of his presidency when the vacancy occurred. Here, we're 22 days away uh, from the election. And so, as a matter of consistency, um, the Republicans have been inconsistent. And so I think the Democrats are questioning legitimacy of what is going on. Secondly, that it's been extremely rushed to move forward. Um, the president didn't consult at all with any of the um, Democratic senators, as best we can tell. And so I think they had those kinds of questions. But then they went on to talk about 
um, as you say, the Affordable Care Act. And basically, I think they're um, concerned about how she might address that issue that's before the court in short order um, after the election. And they're concerned about being in a pandemic and um, having people lose their health care, especially people with pre-existing conditions. So um, I think that's what they're talking about. And I think a number of them also said that they uh, would intend to talk about her record uh, and how she might resolve certain cases, her judicial philosophy, uh, those types of things. What was the focus of the Republicans? Did the Republicans have as much of a centered approach as the Democrats did? Well, a number of them talked about and accused Democrats of using a religious test for office, uh, which I think is a perversion of what Democrats uh, have been trying to do uh, with all nominees. So I don't think that was persuasive for people who actually watched the hearings um, over time, as I did. And I think, though, that all the Democrats seem to be saying they uh, will not in any way do that. But um, we'll see what the questions are. And it's a very delicate, difficult kind of issue um, to find out what, what a nominee's philosophy might be uh, in a particular case. Um, and so it may be that certain cases touch on uh, questions of religion. Of course they do. Religious freedom is on the docket um, in many cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, so I don't know that they can probe that without that kind of accusation coming um, from the Republicans. But uh, even in the earlier hearing for the Seventh Circuit, for Judge Barrett when she was a nominee, uh, I don't think anyone really meant to, in any way, impose some kind of religious test in violation of the Constitution. Um, so they're really talking past one another, um, it seems to me. Uh, so hopefully um, there'll be less partisan sniping and maybe more attention to the process as we go forward. But again, um, I do think uh, that it is rushed, and uh, we'll see how the questioning goes and what the nominees' answers are. Uh, but there was certainly a lot of uh, back and forth between um, the senators on both sides of the aisle um, on, on a whole number of issues, some of which seemed extraneous and some of which hopefully would go to the kinds of issues that should be raised here uh, about how the nominee views uh, her responsibility as a life-tenured member of the Supreme Court. Now, let's talk about her statement. She said that courts should not try to make policy decisions. That's for the political branches. What did you make of that statement of hers? Well, that... I suppose that's one thing that Democrats might ask her about. What does she mean? Because, as I think they pointed out, the policy that was made was the ACA, which passed and uh, despite 
President Trump and Republican efforts to gut that legislation, they can't get it through Congress. And so now, despite their protestation, they're seeking uh, a verdict from the Supreme Court that would uh, change that. Um, and so they're doing the very thing they accuse Democrats of doing, using the courts for policymaking. So I think we'll have to see what she really means by that. Um, and, I, you know, I, to, in fairness, I think she's saying um, we don't make policy. Uh, but, of course, that's just not true. Um, because they will make policy if they were to find the um, law unconstitutional and strike it down. It will make policy one way or another for 130 uh, million people who have pre-existing conditions. And so um, we'll see if they probe that. I expect they will. Supreme Court nominees are often asked about respect for precedent, Explain why that's particularly true of Judge Barrett. Well, I believe she's written a number of law review articles about precedent and uh, has taken a view that is different from some present justices on the Supreme Court. She seems to, according to her critics, respect precedent less than um, other justices on the Supreme Court. And certainly Justice Thomas has been a pretty strong critic of um, precedent uh, and saying most most prior decisions are up for reexamination. Chief Justice Roberts, um, I think, is um, more measured about that and says we ought to be very cautious uh, for reasons of institutional respect um, from the citizens uh, when we change a precedent, especially one that's longstanding. Um, but uh, more specifically, examples would be Roe versus Wade, uh, or there was some mention of um, privacy cases like um, the case from Connecticut in the 60s um, that recognize the notion of a right to privacy. Um, but uh, And, of course, Brown versus Board uh, and a number of other um, precedents. And so I think there's a feeling among some Democratic senators that um, she is less concerned about honoring longstanding precedents or, to flip it around, more willing to overturn them. So um, Explain. We'll, those questions will be asked. Explain this, Carl, because the Supreme Court does overturn its own precedent. I mean, we saw that a couple of years ago when they overturned, a, like, a 40-year-old precedent uh, in the Union case. It just seems as if all this stress on precedent is, is sort of um, elusive because they do overturn their own precedent. Well, they do, but, you know, there are ways to talk about that, and I think, one measure is how long the precedent has existed. Another measure is how strong the precedent is. Uh, there's some discussion of something being a super precedent and that type of thing. But there are notions, uh, especially of time's passage, um, how central that um, precedent is to jurisprudence. Um, but you're right. I mean, if, it, if the courts made an earlier decision that's wrong, 
then uh, I think justices, some feel that it should be changed. Uh, you don't cling to precedents that now are completely outmoded. Um, but Chief Justice Roberts, I think, would say you shouldn't too readily overturn a precedent, especially a new precedent, say, that's a couple of years old, uh, or make a dramatic change only because the composition of the court has changed. For example, uh, President Trump has will likely um, appoint three new justices. Just because the court's composition has changed doesn't mean that precedent should be struck down without seriously considering them. She was a clerk of Justice Scalia and said that she would follow Justice Scalia. What does that mean? Well, that, that's a difficult notion because um, that he wrote decisions and joined opinions you know, over three decades in many areas. And I think she would, uh, mo- well, I wouldn't put words in her mouth. Well, here, I think they'll ask her about that. But um, I think the notions of originalism and textualism and those types of ideas, uh, perhaps, and maybe the notion we were talking about earlier that um, judges shouldn't be policy makers. Um, but uh, there were many areas uh, in which you know, he made decisions, and I don't think she was saying that she would necessarily follow every one, um, but kind of the general outline. But we'll hear about that. I assume that there'll be questions that go to that. Just give me your basic take on her statement. What was she trying to get at? What impressed you? What didn't impress you? Well, I, I, she really didn't say a whole lot that's new. Um, we knew she had said earlier in the Rose Garden that she um, was, uh, you know, a proponent and took views very similar to Justice Scalia, his, her mentor, as she said specifically. Um, and so then the question is, you know, how that will play out. She also said clearly again today, as she had earlier, that she doesn't think judges are policymakers. But as I said, I don't think that tells us very much um, because they make policy in all kinds of areas and deciding all kinds of questions. So then the question is how senators will question her and drill down and be more specific and maybe bring up particular areas of law uh, or how she intends to apply rules as to precedent. Uh, I think all of those questions are legitimate ones that uh, will be asked and tried to move from the more general statements that she has there uh, and to something more specific and concrete. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.